their hearts. <laughs> me, right? I'm on board. Sign me up. Uh, whatever this is going to entail, right? I'm on board. Um, it's, been, it's been noted, right? Those kind of presentations typically don't tell much about a person, except that they don't like to be on fire. That's really what you learn from a person who makes that kind of commitment. You don't learn much about what they think about Jesus and how they plan on living their life and that type of thing. Um, so we were taken back to a little back room. There were like 20, 25 of us, and the guy sat down. I can remember it smelled like dry hair gel uh, and kind of this real strong cologne. Um, and he gave us this bracelet with different colors representing the different things, right, and the plan of salvation, that type of thing. Some of this is ringing the bell to some of you. You probably had the bracelet, right, the little beads, that kind of thing. Um, and I remember we walked back into the room, and, and when we walked in, it just kind of erupted with applause. And you might not know this about me, but I am okay with being the center of attention. Uh, and so, man, I was just hamming it up, right? Uh, and they, they line all the, the kids who accepted Jesus in their heart up in the front of the gym, in front of a couple hundred, few hundred kids. And they were going kid by kid and asking, have you accepted Jesus in your heart? Uh, and so it got to me, and I was like, yes! And everyone, like, erupts and cheer. Um, and I distinctly remember, as an eight-year-old, in front of all these people... Feeling a little bit like I had lied about winning the lottery. Uh, feeling a little like something like this should probably feel different. Because even as an eight-year-old, I mean, I, I really, I'm not making this up. I remember thinking, nothing has really happened. Like, there's no way that, that such an important thing like that is going to take place because I said two sentences. Uh, and I, I mean, we really didn't even, I didn't even know who this Jesus guy was. I just knew if I accepted it in my heart, which was another thing for me as an eight-year-old, there was not a grown man in my heart. Uh, I mean, I wasn't sophisticated enough to get the metaphor, right? I was like, there's no, I mean, he's not here. You should be able to notice that. I still look like me. Um, but I said yes and, and kind of went on my way. Um, and it's kind of the experience that I had. Now, I'm sure that the young man's presentation that day was a little more eloquent than I remember it uh, and a little better put together than I remember it. Um, but I am confident that that is kind of the, the shape that it took because it's kind of the shape that we find ourselves in in kind of our flavor of evangelicalism uh, in our kind of subculture Christianity. Um, that's how the gospel is typically presented, okay? Um, and now we're going to talk about this this morning because um, in our Acts text, it's crazy interesting and awesome uh, where we are in the book of Acts because we get to hear the first Christian sermon. The first Christian sermon, what are they preaching about to people who do not believe the gospel? And this is crazy to me because this is kind of what I do, right? I'm a, I'm a preacher. I'm a sermonizer, okay? So I like to, what are they talking about back here? Um, but it's interesting to us to kind of compare how we view the gospel versus um, maybe how it was presented back in the book of Acts. And I think, again, it's going to be a little bit differently than maybe I heard when I was eight years old. Um, it'll be kind of a different shape to it. So we'll look at that. We're going to answer two questions this morning, hopefully. What is the gospel? What are they preaching? And then how does someone become a Christian? Not only do we have the first Christian sermon, but we also have arguably the most extended explanation of how somebody becomes a Christian in the New Testament. So very, very interesting. Lots to think and dwell on here. I want us um, as believers to look at this through the lens of how you and I communicate the gospel to other people. As Christians, you and I, not just me, the preacher, all of us are called to share the gospel. Not all of us are called to get up in front of people, right, and give a 30, 40, 50 minute sermon, depending on how I feel. Um, but all of us are called to share, whether through our relationships and our lives, whether through conversations and prayer. So I want us to be looking at what is the gospel, how does one become a Christian, in the lens of, of how do we share, how do we participate in God's mission, and then also, um, and just kind of where we are. 
in this journey? What, what have we recognized that our eyes opened up to? What maybe have we not gotten there yet? So we'll pick up in Acts 2, verse 22. Acts 2, verse 22. What is the gospel according to Peter? You'll remember from last week, um, the, the Holy Spirit has come down, Pentecost. They started speaking in tongues. They were accused of being <coughs> drunk. Um, Peter gets up and says, we're not drunk. Joel said in the last days, people would have this kind of experience. The Spirit would be poured out. So he's just, been, uh, he's just finished kind of explaining the disciples, saying, no, what you're seeing is not crazy people. What you're seeing is the last days happening. And now he's going to explain why it's the last days. What has happened? What has happened? He says this, men of Israel, verse 22, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst, as you yourselves know, this Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. You crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. But God raised him up, loosing the pangs of death, because it was not possible for him to be held by it. Notice two things from these first few verses. If you look in verse 23, you have this awesome, confusing paradox here of God having a predetermined plan for Jesus to die for the sins of the world, yet it still being the responsibility of human action, of humans making decisions. There's always this tension there in the scriptures of God as this master chess player, having every move thought out and mapped out according to his goal, but yet you still have human beings making decisions and being responsible for those decisions. You also have this picture of um, this, this awesome way that God works in history, which is he takes dark things and he makes them light. He takes ugly things and he makes them beautiful. I think of Joseph when his family comes to him in Egypt at the end of Genesis and they had sent him into slavery there, he is now able to help them and he tells them what? You meant this for evil, but God meant this for good. The darkest, maybe arguably the darkest moment in human history, God had planned to be the brightest. And then notice one more thing. In verse 24, it says, God raised him up after he died, loosing the pangs of death because it was not possible for him to be held by it. This is actually a mixed metaphor, which means there are two metaphors that come swirling together here and get kind of jumbled up. Um, now, if you were to sit on a staff meeting that we have on Monday nights, um, it would not take you long before you heard people laughing at me uh, and someone talking about my mixed metaphors. Michelle can attest to this, right? Uh, I have this thing where if I haven't thought out what I'm going to say, like it's just off the cuff, right? Um, I tend to just kind of slur metaphors together. And so in like one little phrase, I'll put like three completely different things together. Uh, and they'll, I'll just get made fun of for it, all right? Well, now I'm going to throw this in their face, okay? Peter did this. This is biblical, trying to be an apostle, okay? Um, here's the two metaphors. He says, uh, Jesus was loosed from the pangs of death. This in the Greek, these pangs is childbirth pains, the imagery is that as in childbirth, he had these horrific pains, but they give way to new life. So out of, out of pain comes life and beauty and, and potential creation. So Jesus coming out of death through the pains into life. And then also the metaphor he mixes with it is it was not possible for him to be held by it. The idea comes from the Hebrew idea that death is like ropes or cords and it tangles you up. The idea is that it couldn't hold Jesus back. Like a strong man, he ripped the cords apart. And so he puts these two metaphors together. Uh, almost in a sense of death giving birth to Jesus. 
life exploding out of the darkest depths and also the cords of death not being able to hold him. But he gives us the gospel. Hear these words. He says, Jesus, a man that you saw do mighty works, that you killed, God raised up because he could not be held by death. Let's make a couple observations here. The gospel is the good news of the public and historical story of Jesus. The word gospel means good news. Notice, I think that the gospel, we'll see this in the book of Acts. Acts, one of the most interesting things about Acts is it has roughly 10 or so early Christian sermons. The earliest Christians, what they were preaching about. We have that text. Notice when Paul speaks in his letters, he's speaking to people who are already Christians. So it's not an evangelistic message. In Acts, though, we see what the Christians were saying to people who did not believe. And primarily what they said was they told a story. A story of one who lived, who died, and raised again. Matthew, Mark, and Luke, and John, all their books, the Gospels, are called the Gospel, according to Mark. The good news according to Mark. The good news according to Matthew, and on and on. In a sense, it's like if you would have asked Matthew and Mark, what is the Gospel? What they wrote would be their answer to you. Notice what is their answer. A story. A story of what happened. What God did through Jesus. It's public. Notice he, he says, um, you've all witnessed this. Later he'll say, you, you've all witnessed the resurrection. Here he says, you've all witnessed the mighty signs. He assumes throughout this that no one's going to argue with him. This wasn't done in a secret, as Paul would later say. Our God did not choose to act in secret in a corner. He did not choose to reveal himself privately to us. He entered into history in town square for everyone to see. It's this public historical event. Christianity is not primarily about an experience that you may or may not like to accept. It's about something that happened. It's about something that happened. And the world is different because of it. So a couple conclusions we could draw. What the gospel is, is it's what the God of Israel has done now through Jesus of Nazareth. As we keep reading, we'll see all the promises being fulfilled. We saw this last week in Joel. The last days are here. The kingdom of God has arrived. All that the Israelites have been waiting for has been done and accomplished. Perhaps the greatest piece of Christian literature of the 20th century is what we would call the gospel tract. That's what historians might remember about Christian literature from the 20th century. The gospel tract, typically seen in, in kind of the evangelical four spiritual laws. Um, and and, and um, we've always got to praise God that he uses all of our efforts, even how flawed they all are. Um, but we also need to always be looking back and, and kind of revolving and, or evolving and, and kind of reforming ourselves to seeing what's more faithful. Here's what I'm more and more convinced of as I read the scriptures and, and get to know the Lord, is that there is no Jesus story without an Israel story. What the four spiritual laws managed to do was they managed to make Jesus ahistorical, non-historical. And the fact that he actually lived the life and the fact that he was an Israelite in Palestine in the first century are all just happy accidents. They didn't have to be. But the story of Jesus consistently throughout the scriptures is the story of Israel reaching its great moments. I'm convinced when I hear someone present the gospel, if Israel has not been mentioned, they've at least not begun to hit the fullness of what they were after. Again, praise God that he works 
through all kinds of ways. Countless people have been saved and found Jesus through that. But we've always got to be, how can we, how, asking ourselves, how can we be more faithful? The, the Jesus story is an Israel story. It's, again, what he's done through Jesus of Nazareth. Notice that it's a, a truth statement, a history statement. History is about things that have happened that are true, that exist in reality for everybody. It's a sign of our lack of ability to use words correctly, that we would exist in a society that says things, Christians would say things like this. Jesus seems true to me, but maybe not everybody. That he's how I've found salvation, but I can't hold that for all people. He's my path to God, but maybe there are many paths to God. If Christianity means anything, it means that this is truth, universal truth for all people. This is not about being tolerant or hate-filled or a bigot. None of those things. It's simply about using words correctly. It's about using words correctly. This is something that has happened, and the whole world is different because of it. You've got to realize in the scriptures, the Philippians I'm thinking of, every knee will bow and every tongue will confess, whether they realize it or not, whether they want to or not. This is not something that happens in a corner or happens in our heart. If it means anything, it's a public truth for all to see and for all to eventually respond to whether positively or negatively. What the gospel is not, a couple things here. It's not primarily a persuasive appeal. It's instead a declaration, a declaration of truth. Um, here's what's happened. We, again, and just as I've experienced growing up and as I've been tempted to do as a preacher, we lead off with hell. What we try to do when we preach is persuade people that they really need to make this decision. So let me just clue in on a little preacher stuff, right? Here's how you do that. It's not too hard to manufacture decisions. I mean, it's really not that hard to do if you have a group of people who have never kind of believed. Um, what you need to do is you need to create a state of liminality. If you don't know that word, a liminal state, it's a state of danger, of crisis, it's this state of, of not knowing your identity and feeling like something could go wrong at any moment. Here's how you do it. There are two destinations for eternity, heaven or hell. You could die tonight. Where are you going? All of a sudden, now you need to decide something fast. And you don't feel too comfortable about the state of your life. Liminality, this persuasive appeal, goes straight to the emotions. And typically preys on fear. All of these things combined don't typically create long-term disciples. That's just the reality of it. There's also the danger when persuasion is your primary goal that you sweeten the offer a little bit. Okay? Um, now, this is where our evangelism, differ, our evangelism differs most from Jesus' evangelism. In the Gospels, Jesus repeatedly convinces people not to follow him. I mean, it's just, I mean, you read it and you're going, what are you doing? What are you doing? So um, Jesus will say things like, hey, I know y'all are interested in me. If you want to come after me, you need to eat my body, drink my blood. And everyone leaves. They're like, we like the miracle stuff. We like the love your neighbor stuff. Too much for us. Sorry. And the disciples are like, Jesus, what are you doing? You say things like that. You don't explain them. And people are just freaked out and they're leaving. And he goes, yeah, I know. That's why I did it. And so I was like, whoa, what are, we, what are we doing here? In Luke, there are actually three men who come to Jesus. So notice, they seek him out. And they say, we want to follow you. This is gold. I mean, I don't get people coming to me going, we'd like to follow Jesus. 
I don't get people walking to the door and being like, we want to be in your church. Let us in. We just have to go find those people. They come to Jesus. Jesus gives each three of them a different reason why they shouldn't follow him. And they all walk away. And we go, Jesus flunks seminary. I mean, he, they don't let him back for the second class. We sweeten the deal. We sweeten the deal. Jesus goes, you should count this up. So what, what we typically do in our gospel presentations, um, when, you, when you get to the end of it, the, what's in your mind, typically, again, if you, the preacher's doing his job right in this category of doing it, is the only decision you have, the, the question in your mind is, who wouldn't want this, Right? You'd be a moron not to accept whatever offer they just gave you. Eternity with your family. Things like that. There's nothing that bad about what's happening. In fact, nothing that really takes that much from you. Jesus, though, would, again, just go the opposite direction. He would tell people who want to follow him, Do you like dying? Because that's what might happen if you follow me. You'll, you'll pick up a cross. You'll be like, No, I don't, I don't really want to do that. Do you like losing all of your dreams and all of your ways of living? Because you're going to deny yourself completely and put all your faith in me if you want to follow me. People go, no, that doesn't seem like something I want to do. That doesn't seem like something I'm ready to do, I'm prepared to do. I mean, Jesus is constantly doing this. Now, this is not to say that there's not a call to action. There definitely is, and we'll see how Peter does this. Um, But I don't think in the entirety of Acts, you're going to see this persuasive appeal, okay? You're never going to see someone lead off with fear. What you're going to see every time is a story told, a simple a profound story of what Jesus has done and has been accomplished through him. In fact, um, call me on this, if you go through Acts and I'm wrong, you will not see hell emphasized as a punishment in the book of Acts, in any of the sermons we have. It's not there. It just doesn't exist. What is the gospel? It's a proclamation. We would say it's a declarative, not persuasive. It's a, this has happened, you need to know about it as a human being. You need to know about the truthfulness of what has occurred, and in that light, you're now called to make a decision. Here's another observation we make. It's not, the gospel is not the same thing as salvation. I put quotes around the word salvation, not because I don't believe in it. Same thing as salvation, right? Like, how silly would you be to believe in that? What what I'm saying there is I want to use the words correctly again, right? Many people have substituted the word salvation or the phrase justification by faith for the word gospel. They are two different things. One is what happened. One is the benefits you can receive from it. Do you see the difference? There's a big difference. One is about Jesus. One is about you. Again, the gospels and acts, these sermons, they don't really seem to be all that concerned whether it goes well for you or not, and however you would define that. They seem to be concerned that something has happened, and whether you like it or not, it's happened. And you have to deal with it. Now, is there salvation, rescue from sin and death and Satan and hell? Yes. Is there grace? Yes. Are you justified by faith, saved by grace through faith? Yes, yes, yes. Amen and amen and amen and amen. But that's not the same thing as the gospel. And if you confuse those two things, you get into this kind of individualistic, my salvation was all that was on God's mind when he died on the cross. The gospel is much bigger. It's just bigger, more powerful. I'll be honest with you, the gospel is more interesting than a plan of salvation. 
I mean, it just really is. It's about a new heavens and a new earth. It's about a community of people being saved. It's about sin and death and evil as a whole being crushed and defeated in a shocking act of humiliation on a cross. And now when you and I find our life in that, do we find salvation and grace and justification? Yes. But that comes first. When you confuse the benefits, then then you're telling people that's why they should do it. And if they don't perceive those benefits becoming true, they will probably abandon the commitment, right? There's, there's just some dangers there when you do that, okay? Now let's keep reading and, and look. He's going to explain kind of this story some more, okay? So in verse 25, he continues and he says this. For David says concerning him, and he quotes in here from Psalm 16, <coughs> verse 8 through 11. I saw the Lord always before me, for he is at my right hand, that I may not be shaken. Therefore my heart was glad and my tongue rejoiced. My flesh also will dwell in hope, for you will not abandon my soul to Hades or let your Holy One see corruption. You have made known to me the paths of life. You will make me full of gladness with your presence. Brothers, I say to you with confidence about the patriarch David that he both died and was buried and his tomb is with us to this day. Being therefore a prophet and knowing that God had sworn with an oath to him that he would set one of his descendants on his throne, he foresaw and spoke about the resurrection of the Christ or the Messiah, that he was not abandoned to Hades, nor did his flesh see corruption. The gospel, the story, is built on the events of Jesus' death and resurrection. We might simply say the resurrection, but we would probably include the death in there. Notice that there is no gospel with just his death. Okay? The disciples did not start preaching the gospel after he died. They were scared and thought it had all failed. There's no gospel without the resurrection. Again, always be concerned with a gospel presentation that doesn't need the resurrection. Let me give you one. Jesus died for your sins. Period. You only need a sacrifice for that. You don't need someone alive again. You know what you do need someone alive again for? For the spirit to be poured out. For there to be a king who reigns and directs and leads his people into the future. For someone to reign over a new heavens and a new earth. Did Jesus die for your sins? Yes! But it's bigger than that. The gospel, he resurrected. Death could not hold him back. So he quotes here from Psalm 16, 8 through 11, um, this psalm by David, um, amazing psalm where David seems to say, if God is so powerful, so good and is with us, death itself will not hold us back. And he seems to make a quote here, or a, a saying here in verse 10 of the psalm, 27 of our text, that you won't abandon my soul to Hades, the Greek version of hell, or let your holy ones see corruption. Now watch what Peter does. He says, we've had this text. David, though, died and was buried. In a sense, God let him see corruption. In fact, the tomb of David was in the southern uh, portion of Jerusalem, and it was a very public place. Um, People went there for lots of special events, things like that. Peter's saying, look, you can go dig him up. He's in the ground. We all know where he is. This text did not happen to David the way he seems to be talking about it. Peter says what was really happening, though, is he was speaking as a prophet, because God has sworn an oath that one of his sons would build an eternal kingdom. This is the Davidic covenant, 2 Samuel 7, quoted again in Psalm 132. The allusion here is probably from the Psalm text. That there would be a son of David 
the greater son of the great King David, who would build an eternal kingdom, whose throne would never end. The word they used for that person was Messiah. Peter says David was talking about the Messiah. It did not happen to him, but he knew that one of his descendants wouldn't let death hold him back. The resurrection primarily vindicates Jesus' identity as the Messiah, as the Christ. Christ is the Greek word for the Hebrew Messiah. For the Messiah, think through David fighting on behalf of the Israelites against Goliath, okay? He's the representative. He goes out and fights the battle for his people. He fulfills the promises. He leads them into safety. He defeats their enemies. This is what the Messiah would do. When Jesus raised from the dead, the disciples did not react by saying, God is very powerful and can do miracles. They did not react by saying, I guess this proves there's life after death. They did not react by saying, I guess this proved that God loves us. Notice for the record, they believed all of these things before Jesus was even born. The Jewish people were not up at night going, I wonder if God loves us, if he'll provide for us. They were not up at night going, I wonder if there's life after death. They believed in the resurrection already. They were not up at night going, I wonder if God works powerful miracles. They had the Exodus story, the plagues. They knew God did powerful things. What the resurrection first meant, the big clue it it gave, was he really was the Messiah, the king fighting a battle for us. Remember, the Romans crucified Jesus with the title mockingly over his head, King of the Jews. You might think of the resurrection as God overturning that sentence. This is the King of the Jews. This is the Messiah. The Jewish people had a belief in resurrection, um, the Pharisees at least, uh, which Jesus adopts as his own. Um, And this was that at the end of time, all people would be raised up from the grave. All people bodily raised, physically raised from the grave. Some would go to glory, some would go to shame. You can read about this in Daniel 12, 1 through 2. Now, what they never expected, not once in a million years, we have no evidence that anybody ever considered this, is that the resurrection would happen to one person in the middle of history. And so it happens to Jesus. And the disciples are confused. Resurrection is something that happens to everybody at the same time. And they go back to Psalm 16 and go, it looks like David knew this was coming. That the Messiah would be raised immediately on behalf of his people as a foretaste of what would happen to them. So Jesus is raised. Peter says this proves he is the Messiah. He is the King of Israel. Now if we keep reading, this Jesus, verse 32, he says, God raised up. Of that, we're all witnesses. It's public information. Go talk to somebody in town. It happened. We know it. Being therefore exalted at the right hand of God. So here's his ascension, right? He's been resurrected. He's been ascended into heaven. And having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he has poured out this that you yourselves are seeing and hearing. So, um, Peter, this says, the resurrection that leads to his exaltation as the Lord of all creation. This is a quote from Psalm 110, verse 34 and 35. Psalm 110 is the, if not the, one of the, favorite texts for the early Christians. Now, as every book in our New Testament refers to the Psalm 110. Hebrews, we studied Hebrews not too long ago. A lot of people say it's a sermon on Psalm 110. There's a long extended midrash on Psalm 110. Here in this text, this is David again talking. And he says, the Lord, which this first one in Hebrew would be Yahweh, the God of Israel. 
Yahweh said to my Lord. This is interesting. The Jews always kind of puzzled over this. David's the king. Who's he talking to here? That's not the father, but is his king? The early Christians said, we found him. We figured it out. Yahweh says to my king, says David, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool. The other king said, this was the Lord. Now at the right hand of the father, inaugurated as the king of all creation. He's the Messiah, the king of Israel, the Lord of all. The Lord of all. Now, we're in the middle of the GOP Republican primaries, okay? Um, You might hear this rhetoric um, coming from candidates. The first thing I'll do when I get into the office is this. Uh, so these promises, right? The first thing I'll do, I mean, before I even sit down, I will cut the deficit or I will get rid of this department or I will bring these people on to my um, team of counsel or I will get in there and take a nap, right? I mean, whatever it is, this is the first thing I'm going to do when I take office. Well, according to the scriptures, Jesus had something that was his first priority when he took office as the king of all creation. Look again in verse 33. Being therefore exalted at the right hand of God, and then receiving from the Father the promise of the Spirit, he pours it out. And this is what you've seen. It was this Jesus that's now poured out the Holy Spirit. He brings the argument, the sermon, in full recap now to what he had just been talking about with the Spirit. Think of the Spirit as Jesus' first executive action as the president and CEO of creation. His first action, he gets to the Father's right hand. The Father gives him the Spirit to distribute, and he goes, have at it. And he pours and overflows his people with the Spirit so they can fulfill the mission that he's given to them, so they can be his people faithfully. We've talked about the Spirit, the presence and power of God. He pours out the Spirit to them. It's his kind of first act as the CEO. Now look at verse 36. If you would like a summary of what I think Peter would say was the meaning of Easter, here it is, verse 36. Let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him, Jesus, both Lord and Messiah in Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. The first sermon in the history of the church. Now look in verse 37. When they heard this, They were cut to the heart. They were pierced. They were pained. They were cut to the heart. And they said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, Brothers, what shall we do? What are we going to do? There's a a legend coming from from, from Wales. And the legend is that there's a prince who had this dog that he loved dearly. I don't know if you've ever had a dog that you loved, okay? Um, His dog's name was Gellard, okay? And... Uh, it's a family dog. It's kind of famous in the community. Everyone loved this dog. And, and so he comes home one day, the, the prince of, of Wales, and he comes home and he goes to see his infant son um, before he goes to bed. And as he walks into the room to kiss his, his, baby, his baby boy goodnight, the crib, he notices, has been turned over. And the baby's not there. And Gellert is in the corner of the room, cowering, looking scared, with blood all over him over his mouth, over his coat. And the prince, in fury, rips out his sword and pierces the dog in the heart. And the dog lets out this great cry as it breathes its last. And at the same time, the baby boy cries from the other room. And he walks into the other room, 
And he sees the boy lying there alive. And he sees a wolf killed right next to it. And he realizes in an instant that Geller has saved his baby boy. He had killed the wolf. That the blood was not his son's, it was the wolf's. Now I want you to notice what just happened in all of your hearts. You just had an emotional response because of a dog. I mean, you, correct me if I'm wrong, but you were just like, oh no, he killed the dog. It was a great dog. It was a better dog than he ever imagined. It saved the baby boy. This is what happens to the people of Israel. This is what continues to happen to you and I. They were responsible for killing Jesus. Notice, not directly, the people Peter's talking to most likely if any of them, probably none of them, but maybe just a few of them, had anything to do with directly killing Jesus. They're all from all over town, right? They're from all over the, the nation, the empire. They're coming in for this festival. Notice in the scriptures, we shy away from this because of all the past harm that's been done to the Jewish people, sometimes in the name of Christianity. Um, but when the scriptures talk about the Jews somehow being responsible for Jesus' death, it's not talking about the nation of Jews. Some of the Jewish leaders who most of the nation would have considered corrupt to begin with. The Jews, and then Peter says, into the lawless hands, the Jews couldn't kill someone, so the Romans were implicated too. The Jews and the Romans killed Jesus, but they were cut to the heart because they saw that it was their path that met head-on with the Messiah on a cross. It was the sin that they were implicated in it was the world they had helped create and sustain. And they said, what can we do? Christians throughout history have had the same reaction. You and I weren't there at the cross. We didn't beat him. We didn't put him on a tree. We did none of those things. We'd like to imagine that we wouldn't if he came back. I think we think too highly of ourselves. But we, we hear the story... And we are cut to the heart because in some sense we are convicted that it was our path of life. It was the evil that we helped create, that we were co-conspirators in, that met full on with the Messiah and put him on a cross. And we're cut to the heart. And they ask Peter, what do we do? Notice implicit is in this is, is full responsibility and full commitment I mean, this is a blank check. What are we to do? Because what happened, just like Gellert, they killed him and they did not know at the time who he really was. They did not know that he was the king coming to save them. And they killed him. And then they walked into the other room and saw the baby boy and realized all along he was the Messiah. And they're cut. And Peter gives us, praise God, maybe the longest and most detailed explanation of what he thinks for the early church it means to become a Christian when one is not a believer into one being a believer. So let's read it. Notice that Christian, this word is anachronistic, which means it's like not a term they used back then. We were putting it back into history. Um, the, the early Christians thought they were Jews, right? I think they're correct in the assumption. They saw themselves as Jews, just with a bigger picture of what Judaism was, okay? For a long time, they were considered then a sect of Judaism, like a denomination of sorts. And it wasn't for quite a while until they were considered an actually different religion altogether, which, if you read the history, it was really bad for the Christians. That's when they were being persecuted. 
Judaism had an exception clause in the Roman government. Where the Romans let them do their religion, let them not bow down to Caesar, and they left them alone. As long as Christians were considered Jews, they were safe. The moment they were a new religion, the dogs were sent. That's not here nor there. They're believers. We would use the term Christian, okay? Peter said to them, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, the Messiah, for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Spirit. For the promise is for you and your children and for all who are far off, everyone whom the Lord our God calls to himself. And with many other words, he bore witness and continued to exhort them. Notice this kind of summary. He stayed there for a while, exhorting them, explaining things, saying, save yourselves from this crooked generations. Generation. So those who received his word were baptized, and there were added that day about 3,000 souls. The church grows after Peter's sermon from 120 to about 3,120. Many have questioned this number, thinking it was a little inflated. It wasn't even probably possible. Others now look back and say, in Jerusalem at the festival season, you would have had about 200,000 people there. It was a small city, sure, but not at the festival time. It swelled. Everyone came in from out of town. 3,000 seems like a reasonable number. It does not seem like an exaggeration. 3,000 people added to the group who would consider themselves followers of Jesus in that moment. Okay, now if you are a visual learner, this is your day, okay? This is not often we do this. I get a little chart going, right? We've got a little circle graph happening here. Happy birthday for you, okay? It's a great Sunday. Um, I think that we can lay out Peter's... Um, process of becoming a Christian in this four circle kind of quadrant kind of process okay this is I would say not a, a rule we have instances in Acts where it doesn't happen this way things are in a different order things like that we would say though that according to Acts in the early church this would be normative this would be the expected process of events here's the first he says repent repent and then be baptized repentance is this turning away from a commitment to and a life of sin Turning away from a commitment to and a life of sin. There's People have oscillated throughout history whether repentance is more of a mental thing or more of a, an action thing. And most people have come to the conclusion that you can't and shouldn't separate the two. It's definitely a mental decision to leave past commitments and past ways of thinking and living and acting. And it's also a, a life thing where you actually do other things. You say, with my body and my time, I will not participate in that. I will do this instead. So they repent. And then Peter says, be baptized. Now, we've added a fourth thing in here that's not actually in the text. Okay, don't get nervous. Um, what we'll say comes next is commit. And I'll say it's in the white space between repent and baptism. Repentance necessarily involves what we would call faith. You turn from sin and turn to Jesus. And baptism is a public confession of faith. So implicit in all of this is that after repentance, you then commit. This would be pledging total allegiance to Jesus, exclusively in Jesus. Notice, just for the sake of, of time right now, how we soft play, we tend to soft pedal both of these two first steps. Repentance is not seen as denying yourself completely. And giving up all rights to your life and your ways and ideas of living. And commitment is seen as a half-hearted excuse to get the benefits of salvation. What would happen, dream with me, what would happen if when we converted people, 
we sat down and walked through what repentance looks like, how hard it is. We sat down and looked at what it means to commit. What would happen if we went back and read the Sermon on the Mount with people who wanted to follow Jesus? What if that's what you were signing up for? Not just the benefits of forgiveness, but a life of following Jesus, where he defines you, where he commands you, where he is all for you. And we read the sermon and we said, you're signing up to be a city on a hill. We read the sermon. You're signing up to pray expectantly and boldly and in secret and in humility. And we signed up to and we signed up to, to give and give a lot and give in secret. And we signed up to, to love our enemies. We signed up to not return violence with violence, but to fight and to dare and to risk for peace. And we signed up to at all costs follow him. You repent and you commit. And then Peter says, and then be baptized. There's baptism. Baptism is this public confession of allegiance. So repentance is turning away. Committing is pledging allegiance in Jesus. Baptism is publicly announcing that allegiance. The early church used to, during baptism, say, Jesus is Lord. This is their basic confession. Notice the shift here. We've got to be so careful with our language. The phrase is decidedly not, Jesus is my Lord. He was their Lord. And I get the sentiment behind sayings like that. Jesus is my Lord and Savior. Correct. And amen. He needs to be your Lord and Savior. But maybe primarily he's the Lord and Savior of the entire creation. Jesus is the Lord. In fact, when we read in the New Testament, all who call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved, you should read that not as a sinner's prayer, but as baptism. That's referring to the baptismal confession. That was when you called upon the name publicly in front of everybody. Jesus is the Lord. Notice two things. This process for the early Christians was not an easy thing. In fact, it doesn't take too long where the early church has a three-year process before they'll baptize you. You were called a catechumen between the time you wanted to be a follower and the time they let you. And during those three years, you would memorize, you would take tests, and you would actually be tested in public before they would baptize you. And they would, guess what? Not baptize you if you didn't. Or if you failed the test. They'd say, this isn't, you're not ready for it yet. We'd love to have you, right? But you're not, you're not quite there yet. We look at that and go, that's horribly exclusive. That's horribly elitist. And that's an awful way to grow a community and a church and the worldwide church. And the early church looks at us and goes, we grew up faster than you. <laughs> way faster. And it was incredibly harder to do so than what you make it out to be. One of the reasons for this is because in a community where all this is fully explained and you know what you're signing up for and why you're signing up for it, the world and the church are easily separated. You know who's the church, you know who's the world. We live in a society, post probably Constantine, where lots of people claim Christianity, but probably are not actually fully Christians. Which means we have to have faith that somewhere in the large group of numbers, there actually is a church who actually follows, who actually loves. Early church did not have this problem. People did not look at their group and go, I wonder if they're really Christians. Whereas people look at our church and can slander and malign very easily. 
because we have people in our groups who are not maybe fully committed. All that to say, the early church following Jesus maybe had some things right about this. It involved repentance, committing, and baptism. Jesus is Lord. Notice sometimes, we have records of this, people would be baptized to die immediately. They would get up out of the water, butt naked. That's how they did it back in the day, okay? You think Christianity is hard today, right? We let you keep your clothes on, okay? <laughs> Don't complain. <laughs> butt naked, they rise, step out of the water, and they're killed. Because the authorities would show up and say, you sure you want to sign up for this capital offense? And the question of them was never, should I be baptized? Do I need to be baptized? The question was, I'm being baptized. I'm going public. Jesus is Lord. And if that means I get out of the water and I die, praise Jesus. What an honor. I'm not deserving of that. A different world. Different world. So they're, they're baptized. And then, then we get the benefits. Yes. Twin gifts, right? The Holy Spirit, the forgiveness of sins, and then the life of the Spirit. Repent, be baptized for the forgiveness of your sins and the reception of the gift of the Holy Spirit. Our past is wiped clean and we're given the Spirit to energize us for the future task of living and serving and being on mission. And this seems to be the normative pattern of how one becomes a Christian in the book of Acts. So we'll end with a couple of questions. The first is, what would it look like in your life, in the way you have relationships with your neighbors and coworkers and friends, to proclaim the gospel, to declare the truth of the gospel? Jesus lived, died, resurrected, exalted at the right hand, and the spirit among us today is God just working his cosmic salvation. What does that look like? What words do you use? I mean, do you even attempt that? What is the gospel? And then what would it look like to explain and walk someone through these steps? If I've been clear about anything, it's that I am not the pastor of Sugarland or of this church. We are the body. We're the priesthood of believers. We are all called to minister, to preach. We're called to see people repent and commit and be baptized and receive the Holy Spirit. How do we sit down and explain these things to people? How do we walk through these four steps? I would say this. Um, for us as believers, which is my assumption on a Sunday morning, um, where are you in this, in this process? Here's what I would say. If you've been baptized, we live in a weird, a weird time where there are Christians who I fully believe are committed and they're regenerate and they have the spirit, but they've never been baptized. Um, and, and, just the, and we see this even in Acts. People are believers. They haven't been baptized. The response when people find out is, when would you like to be baptized? There's a pool right here. We can, do it. we can do it right now if you'd like to. The question of can you be saved without being baptized is one that makes no sense to the early church. It's not even worth asking to them. When would you like to be baptized? This is what you do. This, Jesus gave us two things really to do. Lord's Supper and baptism. You only get to do baptism once. You should go for it. The question I would ask, if you haven't been baptized, let's get baptized, okay? Let's just do that. Come talk to me. Let's get baptized. We've got some baptisms slotted coming up. We'll be setting a date soon. Every time we hit this in Acts, I'm going to say this. You have not been baptized. You are a believer. Let's get baptized. Let's go public, okay? And then I think for the believers, we are growing in the spirit. We're learning to live life on a daily basis in the reality of forgiveness of our sins and the spirit pulsing inside of us. 
in the grace we've been given and the life we're called to lead by his power, by his energy working powerfully within us. Notice also, as we wrap it up, the cycle doesn't kind of stop. It kind of keeps going around and around and around. The, the Christians throughout the centuries have, have noticed that repentance doesn't just come before the Spirit. It's produced by the Spirit. Repentance is a never-ending thing. Luther, in one of his 95 theses, says this. When the Lord called men to repent, it was something they should do every day of their lives. You and I will never stop needing to wake up in the morning and going, Today, I repent and I go away from the life of sin and the life of a crooked generation that would kill the Messiah. I turn away in my mind and my actions from that and I commit myself to the Lord of all creation. I will obey him. I will follow him at all costs, at all persecution, at all struggle for my own desires. I will follow him. You're never out of that. At least until he returns and we see him face to face. So for you and I, the call continues to to repent, to commit, and to grow in the reality of forgiveness and the Holy Spirit. Let's pray together. Father, I, I thank you for your scriptures. I thank you for the gospel. I thank you for the book of Acts, uh, where we can learn and see and experience. I pray this morning uh, that you would continue to, by your spirit, open up our eyes and our hearts to the deep realities of who you are and what you've done. I pray that we would be filled up with your spirit. I pray that we would be sent out powerfully on your mission. Uh, I pray that as the early disciples saw, numbers added daily that so we would see fruits of our witness to the resurrection. I pray, Father, that we would continue in a life of repentance and faith uh, and growing in the Spirit. We love you. We thank you for the gospel. And it's in the name of the crucified and risen Messiah that all of God's people said, Amen. Amen.